0: Let's kick off with you. What have you been up to this week?
1: So the first part of the week, I've been working towards getting a new release of Bonsai DB out. Um, It's been over a year since the last release. And uh, part of the challenge that I've had this year is that I've done so much over the past year, um, also taking breaks while working on rewriting the storage layer, which is completely separate Greenfield projects right now that need to get tied back in over time. But at the start of the year, I decided that I really wanted to get a new version of Bonsai out because it's still usable as a database. Um, it's just that I know that it's not as fast as it should be. Um, it's it's, got, it's just slower on transactional performance, basically. Um, and uh, and so, yeah, this this week I've been trying to, you know, see what I can find that I think needs to get adjusted um, before I do the next release because the list in my change log is just screen after screen after screen of changes. And a lot of them are breaking, you know? And, and so the question is like, is it actually at a good state right now? Or are there lurking things that I, you know, changed at some point, but, you know, forgot to come back to. And so I've been just trying to build my confidence and it's almost there. So I'm almost ready to release it. Um, Got a few more things taken care of this week. The only thing that I really feel like I'm lacking is um, a good, current test project for, uh, testing the WASM, uh, client for connecting to the server, um, you know, via browser essentially. And so that's, uh, that's what spun me into my other part of work that I mostly focused on, which was trying to take my GUI project example, um, Bit further, uh, so that I could, you know, potentially get to the point that I had a uh, example with bonsai and GUI together. Didn't quite get there, but um, I think we'll end up talking a little bit about what I did with
0: GUI this week. Uh, so I'll, I'll kind of leave it there for now. Um, but yeah, what, what were you working on this week? Well, before we get into that, I want to ask you. You said you haven't done the release in almost a year and over a I year. Think, <laughs> I think about it, in ov- over a year. Sorry, yeah. over a year. Uh, but. If we look at software ecosystems in general, if you see something that hasn't been updated in over a year, in certain areas of software, you think this thing is dead, right? But in the world of Rust, I don't feel like over a year is necessarily unmaintained software, right? How do you think about this?
1: I, I still feel a little embarrassed. By it just sitting there. I mean, I am a solo maintainer, so like, there, I I do want to give myself a little bit of uh, you know f- uh, a little bit of credit on that. But um, you know, I, I I think that it was a mistake for me to let it go this long because I'm in the situation now with this massive code base that I uh, kind of have lost a little bit of trust with it, um, and it's because I initially wanted to focus on getting storage layer rewrite done so that I could get, you know, speed back, right? And so I thought I, I was optimistic that I might be able to wrap it up towards the end of, you know, last year essentially. And I did make good progress on those projects, but I didn't get to the point of tying it all in. And there's still quite a bit of work left to do that. And so rather than just make everyone who's looking at bonsai wait even longer to get those, you know, changes and get a new update. Um, I realized there was just a lot of stuff that I already had. And like, you know, it was like three weeks after the last release, there was a Rust release, as they happen every six weeks, right? Um, and in that next release was something uh, that I call namespaced features. I can't remember what the official name is. But it allows you to put uh, the letters uh, DEP, D-E-P, colon, in front of your dependencies when you're um, listing them in your feature section, your cargo Toml. And that makes it so that uh, you don't have implicit feature flags uh, for all your optional dependencies. So normally in your cargo.toml, let's say, for example, you're optionally bringing in Tokyo. Um, you put you know, optional equals true on that dependency. Um, and then suddenly everyone can now activate a feature called Tokyo in your crate. Um, what this, uh, new feature, uh, from, from Rust allows is for you to, um, uh, reference the Tokyo dependency in one of your feature flags so you can activate it via, via your own feature name. And when you reference it with dep colon, it prevents the implicit Tokyo feature flag from being generated. What, why is this so important for Bonsai? Well, Bonsai is made up of a ton of different crates. And the ability to um, activate features of um, a dependency uh, without activating the dependency itself is also included in what was uh, implemented there. And so the Omnibus crate can now have a feature called async that will uh, activate the async feature in all of the dependencies without activating those dependencies so for example the client has both blocking and and you know non-blocking sorry blocking and async uh apis and um when you enable the async flag at the bonsai level it won't automatically turn on the client feature flag too or rather won't automatically include the the bonsai db client Um, so this allowed me to make all the feature flags Get condensed into simple names like async or you know uh, 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 server and client, and make them all very simple and additive together. Um, instead of having to have a bunch of individual feature flags at the root level called you know server async or server you know compression or whatever. Like I don't remember what all the feature flag names were, but it just makes everything cleaner. And you know that sort of incremental benefit to using the latest version of Rust everyone was having to wait for on Bonsai and. I really wanted to kind of allow myself to do incremental updates moving forward, as opposed to just waiting until I have this massive update. Um, And so I I would hesitate that even though, yeah, if it hasn't been touched in a year, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's in a bad state because there's a lot of crates out there that kind of reached close to a, you know, 1.0. They just never called it 1.0. And so there's not really much left to do in those crates. There's a lot left to do in Bonsai. And I would encourage people who have big projects to, Keep doing iterative development and don't do what I did here and just try to have a big snowball of a massive uh, release um, when you're done with everything.
0: Because uh, that's yeah, just a, it's just a bad idea. <laughs> this kind of ties in a little bit with the conversation we had yesterday when we talked about very very briefly when it comes to building a game and you don't really have a clear image of what you're building. How do you keep yourself from sort of painting yourself into a corner? But that is of course a conversation for later, but I thought about that as you said that if we build this large thing, but rather as you say, if we focus on building small incremental. Of features or changes as it were right then it is easier to do but then you know i think we're all guilty of doing that thing where we kind of start pulling at a thread and and this thing starts to unravel, and then all of a sudden there's no sweater left right and you've basically made something completely different from from how the thing kind of grows right i i certainly am very guilty of doing that myself uh, which is what i have been uh, now putting back together the hot mess that i caused by trying to make one very, very small optimization which resulted in a massive rewrite. Um, but that was also as a result of me not being entirely happy with the code base. But you know, you know the expression, um, what is it, perfect is the enemy of good, right? Or or also heard as the enemy of done, right? You you, you get a bit too stuck into the detail and you're trying to make it perfect and you're sitting there Contemplating whether you want whether you will accept another allocation. I literally sat there on stream today thinking or talking out loud, like, do I am I okay with an allocation here? Or should we like just take a slice and then do the third allocation, but then we lose state and like you know, just just having a ridiculous debate with yourself whether you will tolerate an allocation or not right it's quite a you know
1: yeah i, I was having a discussion with a friend uh, dax petta who is helping to maintain win it uh, these days and uh, he mentioned um an interesting clever workaround that someone had in a pull request there um to essentially get a static string from a string um, and they were using essentially a, a box leak to do it. And it's really weird. And it, it, after looking at it, it sounds a lot less weird than I just described it because it kind of makes sense in that context. Um, but it was funny because it then turned it down into a rabbit hole of us looking to figure out, is there actually one extra allocation how it's currently written? Or should we switch to box from with the version, uh, taking an ampersand stir? Um, to, uh, you know, r- potentially skip one extra allocation and then like, He and I decided that maybe it was actually slightly better. He made a comment on the pull request. And then, uh, and then like hours later when he was asleep, I I was like having second thoughts. I was like, actually, the compiler might be able to see through this a little bit better in this way. (laughs) Uh, So it is funny the types of things that we end up debating when developing Rust because like I think I've mentioned on previous episodes, it's almost like, you know, because Rust removes a whole class of errors and things you have to worry about. It kind of allows us to focus on these things that, really, in the end, they do matter. But you, most most of the time, we should be benchmarking things before we really worry about all these little tiny optimizations. But oh, you know, absolutely! But at the same time, it's like code golf to to an extent. Like we know that we can get you know well, maybe we can get rid of this allocation. You know that sort of stuff. So
0: I totally uh, empathize with with your experience there. That, the, but that is the question, right? Can you, can you tolerate an allocation, right? And, and uh, especially if this is at the startup phase of a program and your allocation is, you know, a couple of bytes on the heap, it really shouldn't be a question. But every time you see it, I think this comes, I think this comes with, uh, Rust experience over time. You start to see allocations almost as these little markers. You see strings, you see vectors, but you're thinking, oh, heap allocations. And then obviously you should pay attention to these. But if it's at the start up of your program, right? Then should we really should we really be that concerned? Now I know That when you say things like, should we really care that someone out there who is working on a very limited system is saying, yes, you should, you (laughs) should 100% care. But that is not me. My computer is not that. So I think I'm okay. If I throw a couple of allocations in, in in the startup process of my program, I shouldn't. But I do I do think about these things, right? I do think. about Well, this. every Rust
1: um, a standard program um, has it has some allocations built in uh, due to how the the arguments uh, are parsed from the from the environment, right? Um, that's something I, I read recently. That. Yeah, maybe yeah. you and I saw the same thing. Um, I might have to try to hunt hunt for it. Um, I skimmed it. <laughs> um, the the long story short is that. The standard library uh, does have some allocations that happen at, uh, during the startup phase um, to kind of deal with some of the unsafe nature of uh, of um, the C environment. Well, I mean, LibC environment, whatever you want to call it. Um, that, you is know, this how, because there's an old string
0: in. under yes. the hood of the Well, oath?
1: even worse is that environments can be modified um, externally. And so um, uh, even the arguments string itself can technically be written to. Um, and so y- the, you need to be careful to you know, of your expectations of what's actually in the args uh, section there. So apparently there's some, um, uh, it's all from memory, so I'm going to have to try to find this article now and, and link it in the show notes. Um, but uh, they like store uh, the current value on startup and do some extra checks if you try to access OS args um from uh like afterwards and the pointers changed or something like that i don't remember the specifics of the post but there is the long story short is that uh every rust uh program that uses stood uh, does actually do a little bit of allocations
0: at startup that are unavoidable interesting i didn't know yeah i want to read this now i want to i want to have a look at this thing that's cool um all right so yes so what what have I been working on I have been working on a viewport widget or rather that is what I'm trying to finish up for my text user interface and what I've been focused on is it stems from a rather ridiculous um expectation of having users being able to point or, or load large quantities of data and then draw this data by just giving it the data and say okay draw this Ten million lines of whatever onto screen, and of course you 're not going to draw ten million lines you 're going to draw whatever you can fit on screen and then stop drawing so to do this, I wanted to I wanted to write something that could evaluate the the expressions that then becomes the 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 nodes or the widgets that we draw um, and in doing this, we can also have negative offsets so if we say we have ten million entries, I want to draw from one hundred thousand. Uh, Onwards, but I want to have a negative offset because I have scrolled the view up one line. Then I have to then I have to render backwards. I have to evaluate backwards. So I have written a bidirectional evaluation of expressions. Right? That that sounds a lot fancier. What it is, it just allows you to evaluate expressions in both directions from now a stack of of expressions. Right? Um, And that's what I've been working on. I'm almost done. And this led me to something that I will, that I' to talk about a little bit, that I will call the pit of stupid," which is, what if he's like I fell down into at some point, and I wonder if other people are equally good, Am I alone in this pit, or are there more people here with me? You, you start writing some software, you start writing some code, and you kind of know that the code isn't right. You can't really tell why just yet, but you know it's not right. But you just keep building on top of it. And it's just, it, it starts to becoming this sort of awkward, you know, mathematical, numerical manipulations to shoehorn things in. You get magic numbers in there. And it's just this thing that just goes from, you know, it's terrible and it just goes from worse. But I can just keep working on this thing, right, in under the, under the hopes that I'll finish it. Take a step back and I come back and then go, okay, this is how we're gonna fix it. This is that's that's exactly what I did with my control flow yesterday. I looked at it and I thought, this is terrible. And I rewrote and I managed to get it down to a few lines of readable code, right? Um, and also, when you when you shrink the number of lines of code, I think it's important to say you shrink the number of lines of code, but you keep the code legible, right? Because we can all we can we can all probably get down to one line with some pretty interesting iterator adapters, right? But uh, to make it legible is, is kind of and and an, you know um, sensible is another aspect of of keeping it good, right? Um. But so so anyway, so this this is this is the thing, right? So I, I've been I've been just building on something that is kind of in this um almost stream of consciousness uh, programming. So you kind of, almost like how a child tells a story, right? You go, and then, and then, and then, you just keep adding on these things. And this is what I would call the pit of stupid, because I just, I fell into this thing and I just kept writing more and more terrible code on top of each other, knowing that I'm going to have to come back with a hatchet. To get rid of the, the the stuff, right? Have you have you ever been in that situation? Have you ever sort of started writing terrible code, but instead of stopping what you're doing, you kind of just no, we're gonna go full speed ahead, produce the most terrible thing we can to get it working? Have you ever been there? Kind of. I it's it's hard
1: to say that you know, like I almost take offense to the to the label of the pit of stupid, purely because um, like I don't necessarily. Um, feel like I've gotten there intentionally, right? Like, it's not... You know, I, I recognize that you're 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 calling it that after you've been in there for a while and you're like, Oh, what what was I doing? Why am I doing this? And then you have to make a decision, do I roll everything back and start again? Or do I try to just keep going to see if I can like finish it up somehow um so that I can refactor it later? Because we've talked about on on previous episodes, refactoring a rust is just night and day better than any other language we've ever used. Oh, it's amazing. Um, it's amazing. And so, so there isn't there isn't necessarily a stupid argument of you know uh, of just taking it to completion if you think you can get th- um now if you keep running into walls while you're trying to finish it up and you're just like man you know this is just designed horribly and then you're like well maybe i can try this and you run into another wall um, <laughs> Then, then maybe you should really consider stepping out of the pit, you know, reverting everything or stashing everything. Um, I have so many get stashes, by the way, um, just from, you know, rolling back, uh, failed attempts at various things that I never go back to because I ended up fixing it in a different way or something like that. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, I definitely have experienced it. I just consider it, I don't know, the fact of life
0: when programming. <laughs> You know what? I think we'll rename this thing to the pit of facts of life, right? That sounds a lot better than the pit of stupid. Well, here
1: here I am sipping my morning coffee, uh, dealing with our time zone shenanigans, and uh, I feel like I just butchered uh, multiple idioms into one. So uh, I probably meant to say something completely different. Um, But I wanted to go back, um, because every time I make the show notes – I have to mention that uh, the thing still hasn't been named. Do you want to actually name your your Tui uh, project on the on the uh,
0: recording? <laughs> you know what? Maybe I should. Maybe I should keep this. Maybe I should keep this um, less public. Right? Given the fact that I am not working of the main branch and I, I am. <laughs> I am writing the worst. I am writing the absolute worst commit messages. I think we could make half an episode of just reading these commit messages because <laughs> they are terrible. Uh, there there is a there is a thing here, right? I'm I'm intentionally being very um I'm, I'm intentionally writing terrible commit messages because I am going to smoosh all this into one big chunky commit with no turning back, right? This is I've committed to this. So there will be no trace of these commit messages. Unless someone goes and fork <laughs> it now, just for that reason. I realize that I probably shouldn't say that out now, but, but the plan is to hide all evidence of terrible commit messages. And, and, and some of them commit messages are... Uh, going to grandma's house and, you know, one day we'll write sensible commit messages. It's an actual commit message in there, I think. As well. <laughs> There's like, it's just complete and utter nonsense. And that's because I don't want anyone to use this yet. Right, And, and, and be mindful as well, that I just refer to half, half of today's progress as being in the pit of stupid. So <laughs> if I, I guess if you're gonna judge me for my code, be, remember, <laughs> i 'm a humble developer okay with very with who spent too long in the pit today um but uh, no i I ask him um, i ask for for a ask for forgiving eyes if you go and look at that thing because it really isn 't good, but it's soon soon i'm going to make this super commit. And, and smoosh everything together into one uh, beautiful branch. And from that point onwards, I, I'm going to do better in, in promoting it.
1: So I, I never know if how much people actually go through and look at, you know, get history um, of, of projects. Um, I am of the mindset that I don't like. Erasing Git history, even going as far as that, uh, it, you know, multiple the Git hosting platforms has the ability to squash when you merge, um, so you end up with just one commit. And I, I kind of don't like that. I understand some people really do because it's like, okay, this entire feature is now committed. But sometimes there's interesting metadata that's lost in that process that a git blame can show you someday in the future. Like, why is this line this way? And then you go and see the exact commit where it happened inside of the feature development. And, you know, that can potentially give a lot of extra insight that that wasn't, you know, wasn't really readily available. If you just saw one massive, (laughs) it happened when we added this big feature that touched 2000 files, right? Um, you know, that doesn't really give too much uh, context. So um, I understand, obviously, this is a your, you know, you haven't even, well, I mean, I guess you have done an initial release. So it's, it's going to be, you know, it's still very early in development library, though. Um, so, you know, I can understand that the the history, you know, may not be quite as useful. But I'm curious, just in
0: general, whether you agree or disagree with my philosophy there. I I agree and I disagree. I agree with it when I'm working with other people, right? So there is um, the in that sense, I definitely think that you know squashing commits and and um, bunching commit messages together is probably not the best thing to do. Um, but I also am guilty of having pushed multiple commits to trigger ci's all oh yeah way, all that's, the time my, uh, that's a life, big right? pet
1: peeve that like i mean okay how many projects can i start that's you know uh you i i think i've chatted with you about running my making my own ci service powered by bonsai even uh but no it's it i am annoyed that it is so hard to test ci actions like I really wish that there was an easy-to-deploy, self-hosted CI solution that let me test things locally. If you know of anything, especially if it's made in Rust, please let us know. Um, Podcast at Way of the Crab or any of the other places that uh, you can reach out to us, um, which will be in the show notes. because uh, I also just within the last few days pushed four or five, you know, fixing CI messages in a row <laughs> while I was <laughs> testing changes to to, to to workflows. So yeah, it's a oh, man. Yeah,
0: maybe maybe what we should do is have like a universal language for poking the CI. And everyone can just learn to ignore um, those commit messages when they say, so oh, would be like, all right, that's the CI. We're just gonna, we're yeah. just gonna move past that. We just stop seeing these things, right?" I kind even of, have gone know, as
1: far as putting a second line in my commit message saying, "This message may be repeated multiple
0: times," <laughs> because I'm just anticipating how many times I'm gonna have to tweak this because of what <laughs> I'm working on. Like, <laughs> I don't know. I guess I, I mean, yeah, and it, it isn't, it isn't an easy thing to, to do to test it because a lot of times something like a deployment CI is set up to run off the main branch. So you can't just fire up a a, a throwaway branch and, and do it there. And then again, just, you know, squish the commits. But I think yeah. it's, I think it's fine. I think most people are guilty at some point doing that. And I think we all feel the same way. I hope no one reads my commit messages when we've done 30 of these Hoke the pipeline <laughs> messages, right? No one's gonna read that. But then I don't read commit messages, I have to say. I don't, um, I, I mean, it, it, let me rephrase that. It's very rarely that I have to go back and read commit messages. So yeah. I, I don't know, right? It doesn't happen a lot.
1: It's usually if you get blamed for me, you know, and then I, and then I'll, you know, once I've identified roughly where something happens, uh, or when it happened, rather um i can then you know look at the neighboring commits you know in history um but that's pretty much the extent of of me poking through history usually um
0: yeah i yeah i well you you're not wrong on that one i love git blame i think it it sounds terrible it sounds mm-hmm. like we're going to find someone now who's going to yep. pay for this this is what git blame sounds like and you look at the code you 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 be like who wrote this terrible thing you the git blame and then it's your name coming up and you're like okay fine but uh, you know but it's really good git blame is really good it should be shouldn't be called git blame it should be called no. git who do i need to talk to who wrote this feature who do i need to talk to that? but that's a little yeah. bit of a mouthful so i guess git blame is i mean maybe git who would have been better right I and mean, it's even <laughs> shorter right there we go perfect Fixed it listen call the git call git <laughs> git the person call git and tell <laughs> him to fix it um. no of course right? uh, okay you know what I think that probably pretty much covers everything that I have on my project which is very like it's very short what I've been working on today and I have a, um. you know I've, I've been mostly about for loops and, and these kind of things oh, there's one thing there's one more thing I want to say of uh, in, in regards to the, the pits of facts of life and is this usually the next day when I wake up in the morning the first thought I have is either god i hope i can solve this today or it's the solution it kind of it's there for me when i wake up right it's like um feel, it feels a bit magical sometimes to wake up with a solution the first thing i uh, wake up with but but that's it right so so that's all i want to say about that um we we had uh we had some conversations about uh gui's right and uh, one of your one of your notes right said um we don't need DSLs, right? And this is <laughs> this is this context to this sentence, right? There's a lot. And, of and I, I realize
1: centers. that you may feel personally attacked, given that your language <laughs> has, uh, that you're not your language, your uh, your all. project has a uh, templating, you know, DSL slash language in it, you know, whatever you want to call it.
0: But I think we can actually use this as um, as a good way of talking about the pros and cons of DSLs. The thing is, I I have very specific reasons for why I want a DSL, right? And and you might not have. You might have very different uh, requirements. And on top of that, I will say that as I was working on this, getting towards the the end of. Uh, of the big refactoring, right, the biggest thing I've done here, I was thinking, um, because there's so much data manipulation and user input manipulation, and I was thinking, next thing I do, I am going to leverage the type system so much that half of these things, or a third of these things at least, will just be compile errors and not um, runtime errors, right? Because you can take the type system pretty far in Rust, Mm-hmm. Um, when you don't have a DSL. So, can can we, should we talk a little bit about the pros and cons of DSLs and when uh, you may or may not want a DSL? How do you feel? Yeah. Yeah. Let me, let me
1: take a step back and give a little bit of frame to my, my comment. Um, so, uh, most of the week I spent working on bonsai, but the last two days I switched back to, uh, working on GUI, uh, and something else too, but I'm not going to bring that up today. Um, the, <laughs> um, but I, uh, the, the part where I was wanting to take GUI was to, to, um, I had like an initial proof of concept that just showed like how you can get a button to do a counter, um, which was nice, but. Uh, In my brain, there was still um, uh, kind of another challenge, which is how do you make these reactive events, like clicking on a button, allow you to make a new view entirely or a new widget, whatever you want to call it in your your favorite, you know, paradigm. Um, And so, you know, I I wanted to make it so that you could, you know, uh, dynamically add new children. Um, But the way that uh, Leptos and some of the other frameworks would often do this is uh, you would provide like a list of values. To um, some adapter that then gets, you know, uh, kind of iterated or instantiated once per. And it's kind of a, a disconnect because what I really wanted to do was allow you to literally box any widget somehow. You know, because uh, I don't actually want you to have to call box on it, um, but, uh, you know, to, to, to convert any type of widget into something that can be stored inside of, let's call it a flex box type widget. Um, and uh, I finally got that done this week. Um, but then, you know, as I finish that, there's the question, do we actually pursue GUI or do I pursue GUI? Um, and... I don't know. And so I decided to make a nice readme on the project, on this branch, um, so that I could paste it here today. Um, And I might even do a follow-up blog post, too. Um, But uh, part of it, I wanted to outline what I consider the goals of my GUI project. And one of them is we don't need DSLs. And the the kind of caveat that I have here is that I still think that I'm going to have a DSL. (laughs) Um,
0: But... uh... I, you can't I think, get away from them.
1: <laughs> but I but I think that it's important when you're early on in developing a library in Rust that you don't immediately reach for proc macros or you don't immediately reach for, you know, an externally parsed grammar of a file that you load. Because uh, if, if ultimately what you're needing to do is get to Rust structures in memory… Um, you really should have a nice builder pattern or some some way to construct those things. Really easy to use from someone who's just writing Rust code and doesn't necessarily want to jump into your proc macro land or you know use your extra format. Um, and I have used several frameworks in the past that I'm not going to name because this is a nitpick um, that uh, have fully embraced the proc macros. But then when I wanted to try to do something directly in Rust without the macros um, for whatever reason, um, I found that the API was really ugly or undocumented or, um, like, b- basically was kind of pretended to be private, even though everything has to be public because PROC macros call, you know, public APIs, essentially. Um, yeah. It just rubs me the wrong way. And, like, to me, I want to make my libraries as usable with just the built-in tools make it, you know, all rust to start with, and then consider once we've kind of made the framework as good as we can, how we might be able to simplify it even further with proc macros or with a, you know, a parsable. Like the place that I think that uh you know I can't get away from a DSL is that um tweaking styling information in an app um is something that I don't want to have to wait for a re- recompilation process to happen. Um, But if all the styles are defined in Rust code, then I have to recompile and rerun the application to see it, you know, update, right? Um, So I could see myself wanting to have a style sheet system similar to CSS that allows me to bring in external, you know, source files that I can then also swap out at runtime without having to recompile the entire application. That just allows you to tweak like visuals. Um, So I can see a benefit for having that sort of thing. I just want to wait, as long as possible to get there so that i can force myself to use the framework without those niceties try to make it as good as possible before we break off into doing those things
0: yeah and and i totally see what you mean with the with the um, you, know, so you you don't you want to use the macros and it kind of feels like you're using the library in a way it wasn't really intended to be used you you sort of feel like you're you're committing some kind of a hack by using these undocumented, unspecified uh, things that were written to work with ProcMacros macros firsthand, right? Um, so I'm I am, I'm am very aware of that, and that is something that I'm thinking about a lot um, when it comes to how I design my uh, framework, right? Um, and the thing, the thing that makes me say that DSL is is fantastic from my perspective. It's because I can ship my software with my templates as a sidecar to my code. So when I give someone my program, I just give them the functionality and they can decide what it looks like. Now, this is obviously not um, necessarily uh, the level of freedom you can have in something that is highly dependent on performance and, and such like, uh, um, uh, GUI, right? But in the terminal, you have very limited amount of, of of space to draw. If we were to talk about the cells as pixels, then you have a very very um, small resolution. So allowing someone to do this and then read this in at at runtime and do all the layout and all that stuff, I think there's there's kind of a it's, it's a little bit more forgiving in that world, which is what, what I would like to see more of. I would like to see more uh, applications that we can decide how we want to look at the data. So we kind of just provide the uh, the, the data provider as the application, and then let the end user customize a default template to decide how something looks, and this is obviously a lot more applicable when we're talking about you know text text user interfaces. We're talking about terminal chat clients. We're talking about I don't know. Maybe you have some kind of dashboard. I don't know. Everyone loves dashboards. I I want to write a dashboard, and at the same time, I have no interest in dashboards. They don't do anything. They they never show you what you really need to see. So, <laughs> uh, but they look fun. They look fun, and I think you know what. If you wanna if you wanna modify how something looks like, you should be able to, and um and and that's a, so there is a there is a difference there right i think the freedom of customization but i am talking about this um from a perspective where you load your layout at runtime mm-hmm. not at compile time right which is why um i would agree with you uh, proc macros are not my favorite and that is because proc macros also works directly on the on the um the token streams of Rust code—you don't really—you sort of feel a little bit detached from the rest of Rust when you're writing proc macros, right? I, I, I sort of subconsciously avoid writing them even to some degree, um, just because I feel like, <laughs> yeah. And it's like it's almost like we're doing string manipulation as a language, but not really, right? It's like I'm talking about using things like uh, the quote create and, and such when you're putting things together. You're writing these strings of Rust code, and it just just feels a little bit backwards, right? But that is, of course, just of the way I feel about it. There's nothing ill towards the, the macro systems or anything like that, right? And I'm, well, I'm, I'm there, honestly, there are some downsides,
1: though. And that's actually kind of what I wanted to, to talk about. So um, proc macros require a separate compilation phase from the compiler because they have to be compiled before your code can be compiled. Um, because the compiler has to actually execute your proc macros, um, and so that adds a little extra uh, compile time overhead. Um, but on top of that, uh, because that's how it works, things like Rust Analyzer have a lot of trouble giving you good code completion um, in in those macros, depending on the the actual format of uh, what you're what you're using within the macro. Um, and so you know we're kind of fighting against. Uh, I mean, just imagine if you're trying to write uh, something like a Rust Analyzer and you need to peek into a proc macro. And the way that you have to do that is either to just hard code some special knowledge about that thing or uh, literally compile the proc macro and execute it and see what you get out of it. But that also means you have to handle the situations that those are potentially going to throw errors. And then how do you recover from them um, in such a way that you can still present good, you know, reasonable, you know, code help or whatever. Um, And so I find that Rust Analyzer's autocomplete just breaks down all the time when I'm working inside of proc macros. And if my entire user interface is defined by a proc macro, it seems like it's going to be a not wonderful experience. And having used uh, several frameworks that use um, HTML-like macros, um, I can say 100% sure that that absolutely happens all the time and it drives me crazy. Um, And that's one of the reasons why I wish that I could write just more plain Rust code um, that generates these things um, so that I could just have Rust Analyzer help me.
0: I think there was even a post from someone who works on the Rust Analyzer talking about, the complexities of dealing with macros in Rust Analyzer as well. I think there Yeah, I'll link to that post. Have...
1: That. I'm pretty sure it was Matt. Matt clad. Uh, I've never tried to say that word out loud before. Uh, sorry if I butchered it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I've, I'll, 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 I know exactly what you're talking about. I'll, I'll try to find it for the show notes.
0: All right, excellent. Maybe yeah. So th- so there, there is that. So when it comes to DSL, right? Then we have we have two different. Um, well, we have more than two, but there's sort of two sides to this, from from where I'm standing. If if I'm going to write an application and it's going to be pure Rust and nothing else, then uh, I probably don't want a DSL, right? I would say, let me use the type system as much as possible, right? There's things that can be compile time uh, errors is better than runtime errors, right? I think there's no one's going to disagree with that, right? It's going to be... Um, things we can catch at compile time is is great because that means that our end users are also not our you know our, our quality assurance team or our, mm-hmm. our you know our testers right. Um, so so I think that for that reason is really good right. Um, I, I realize we kind of missed. Sorry, go ahead. No, go on. Oh, so the
1: I realized that we we never actually said what a DSL was. We just kind of jumped into it. So apologies if you're one of the listeners who has not actually heard the, the phrase DSL. It's domain-specific language. Um, and we're kind of throwing it around a little loosely here um, because we do have kind of uh, two different things that, that are we're, we're, we're talking about. Because um, proc macros absolutely get checked at compile time, right? Um, so we can still get compile time errors. It's just that the other tooling kind of breaks down with them. So you can, you can write these domain-specific languages in such a way that they're parsed via a proc macro. So that there, you do get errors right at the time that you, you know, compile. Um, there's also the other flow that is just like a, a separate. You know, language like CSS in a way is a domain specific language because it's a very specific thing that it's coded for. Um, and it's a, you know, syntax that was designed for a very specific problem. And originally it was included directly in the uh, HTML source code as a special tag, right? So, like, uh, there's a lot of precedence for calling CSS a d- domain specific language. Um, and in many ways, that's kind of similar to what we're talking about is that, um, you know, for, uh, uh, for toggles, um, Uh, TUI project, uh, there's this DSL that's actually uh, loaded at runtime and parsed from essentially plain files. Um, But then there is an an alternate way that you, you could have technically done the same thing by just putting it inside of a proc macro and parsing it there and generating the code behind the scenes. Um, and then you would end up, you know, with a slightly different set. Like, obviously, when you do that, you, you're no longer running, loading it at runtime. So now it's a completely different feature. But both of them are technically domain-specific
0: languages. I guess where I stand, since you pointed out, which is very good, I guess where I sort of stand with this is if it's going to happen at compile time, then I don't want the DSL most of the time, right? Then I want uh, just standard Rust code, right? I want nice type inference and... I want to be able to observe the code and not have to dissect a macro with my brain as I'm looking at these things, right? So definitely um, pure Rust, no proc macros, though. I understand this part of Rust, but, you know, pure Rust with no proc macro, no DSL if it's at compile time. If it's at runtime, I'm okay with the DSL, right? Because then that gives you that kind of flexibility of customization and such. That's a bit of a you know, there's gonna be edge cases where the that where I don't feel that way about this, right? But to sort of make a generalization of it, that's kind of how I'm thinking. What about you?
1: I I think that's kind of it too, is that like the there's a difference to me between like the, the derive proc macros where you can derive functionality on a type. Um, because that kind of implies that, hey, if I don't want to derive the behavior automatically, I can just implement it manually. Um, so as long as that's still possible, I, I basically agree that like, I think that proc macros are kind of optional. Um, for the longest time, Bonsai didn't actually have them until our mutual friend uh, ModProc uh, started submitting PRs with them. Um, and uh, I they, they make a huge reduction in boilerplate. But I make sure that it's still fairly straightforward to define those traits by hand uh, because some people may still want to because there are some opinionated things that the macros do to try to make life easier.
0: I also think it's good to know what the macros do before we use them. I think there is there is a few situations where I, I kind of sort of just put it in the I don't really care corner, and that is with SIRDI, right? When when you put SIRDI-derived, serialized, deserialized, you kind of just look at the struct and you go, look, you're going to turn into some byte somewhere and it's going to be fine. And we can make this struct out of those byte later on, right? And it's, it's all good, right? But when there's proc macros in a world that I am unfamiliar with, then I prefer to be able to build it with our proc macros first to understand what it is the proc macros do. And then the proc macros becomes sort of an abstraction in the same way that we can talk about programming concepts in abstractions without having to outline code. We can say, all right, we're going to have a for loop here without having to talk in terms of of symbols and and such, right? So I think proc macros is a little bit like that for me as well.
1: Yeah, those are some really good points. Um, I think we had just one um, listener question that I thought might be... uh, Slightly interesting to talk about, Let's which was... Uh, I'm, try- I'm trying to find it because I didn't actually uh, put it there. Um, uh, I'm going to just summarize it. It's from our Discord server uh, from user iBloat, um, which is... Uh, they, they essentially ask whether or not we're interested in using uh, generative AI um, for any aspect of our, our game.
0: Well, certainly not during the runtime of the game is what I'm thinking. Um, maybe, maybe something you know what i don't know i haven't thought too much about this right i I know that i don't i don't sort of want to jump on the bandwagon of ai because everything is like the hot topic everyone's talking about this thing um and they they make it out to be this kind of thing and, and like oh this thing will change our lives forever and all that stuff and it still cannot tell me how to write a Rust program that's using the standard library and tells me the size of the terminal. So I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm being flippant here, of course, right? But um, so what are your thinking?
1: Uh, I haven't done tons of, of playing with it. My, my biggest issue with, uh, let's just call it the ecosystem at large right now for these uh, generative AIs, is that... Um, most of the popular ones aren't actually fully open um there are a lot of licensing restrictions on how you can use them um and you know there are definitely open source uh you know implementations of these uh I think they're called LLMs or something like that um and uh you know they require a lot of processing power to run um so to to me one of the goals of the the game that I want to build is something that um is cheap to run <laughs> <laughs> because uh, <laughs> uh we we've, we've jokingly said that we 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 would be happy with McDonald's salaries um you know for for our uh for our living expenses <laughs> um so uh, you know to and keep we are uh, we,
0: not talking about the CEO of McDonald's either we're talking about No no you know, we're talking the about Mac the jobs, the hamburger right? flippers yeah um mm.
1: yeah no um the so yeah I, I ultimately can't see running one of these services at runtime like you said um, on one of these servers, because I really want to run on a fleet of, you know, little tiny VPSs, um, that, uh, are, are, you know, load balanced amongst each other and, you know, dynamically balance. Um, and hopefully, you know, cost us, you know, less than a hundred bucks a month total <laughs> to have a high availability setup. That'd be amazing. Um, uh, but you know, we'll get, we'll get there someday. Uh, in terms of AI, though, for using it uh, for like helping us come up with storyline content, or you know, um, you know that sort of stuff, I- I'm mostly concerned with copyright issues. Um, to me, there is not a good, clear um, uh, legal answer about whether or not you can actually be found liable for copyright infringement through some of these LLMs. Um, and it's an interesting debate topic that I really don't want to have on this, on this topic or on this uh, podcast, cause I am not a lawyer. Um, so I, I tend to edge on the side of playing it safe from those types of, um, of issues. So right now I don't want to touch it with a 10 foot pole because to me, it's not safe to use from a, from a, from a owning the content you make perspective. Um, so until it is, I'm
0: not super tempted by it. Yeah, I think I think I'm 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 in the same camp there as well. There's also sort of talking about that without getting into the whole AI and moral of, of of things, right? There are also debates whether training these language models on the data if that in it of itself has abused copyright. But I think that is this is of course not a topic that I really know anything about, right? I just seen the the noise online whether it was uh, okay to train on, on this large set of data and did they actually have the rights to do so and then now they're selling this data and you know and i also wondered very very briefly before i put the thought to bed was can you write a license for your code saying that this code is for human consumption only right and and then um, you know, it's a it's a it's a different world, right? There's a lot going on, and and um, yeah, I am certainly not uh, overly clued up on it. And I agree with you. I think using it to maybe produce some kind of short story for something might be something one would do at some point, but. I, as someone who actually likes to write and come up with terrible stories, yeah. I, I feel like I don't mind doing that. I I, I look forward um, to us making fun, crazy stories together. I do. I write. I take notes and and I write down things that I come across in my day. I write up. Even my kid uh, will tell me stories, and some of these stories have merit, and they are they are. She was describing some kind of uh, swamp of fire bunnies, and, and, and I thought, oh, this is fantastic. I'm just I'm yes. like, that is just going to get the notebook, right? <laughs> it's just like, yep. here we go. royal. We are going to have fire bunnies people. in our game, apparently. That's a, well, that's a great idea. There might be. I've not decided, because we want our game to take, you know, take place in, in, in the universe, in, in space, right? And, and there maybe, could be space fire more. bunnies. Meet flying fire bunnies who can breathe in space or don't. This need sounds to breathe amazing. Rather, how can you go wrong with it? If you're interested in fighting flying fire bunnies in space, you should definitely stay tuned to this podcast because this is where it's happening. Okay, <laughs> watch our <laughs> listenership just go skyrocketing after this episode. <laughs> I listen. I think EA is calling right. This is going to happen for us now. Um, but you know what? Speaking of happening or rather not, uh, we haven't really uh, sort of started shaping the game world uh, in an official capacity. We have had conversations back and forth, and we had one yesterday that I thought was really fruitful, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So what do you think should be our next steps? Or is this throwing you under the bus by asking that question? No, I mean,
1: uh, the next steps for me are to decide whether or not I want to write a GUI framework on top of writing the game (laughs) Um, and on top of writing a database. Um, you know, because ultimately, like, we're still kind of picking our initial setup. Um, you know, you've been, you, I've been working full time on open source stuff for a while now. Um, and you've had to deal with clients until fairly recently. Um, and so I've had a lot more free time. So in between things with Bonsai, I've started this, like, you know, mud like, uh, engine sort of thing in Rust that's fired by Bonsai. That's just some a basic framework of, how like logins and stuff are going to work, and how character management might work, um, uh, while delegating as much as possible to the actual game author. Um, uh, you know, so I see some of the next steps is shaping what that is, um, and either throwing it out because I've done a horrible job, or continuing <laughs> to grow with it, um, and uh, you know, figuring out how to put an interface on it because right now it's all just APIs essentially. And so until, like, I really want to get us to a point that we have uh, something in air quotes playable. um, Because once you have something that's live that you can go touch and and play around with, uh, it's going to be so much more rewarding when we add a feature and can go play with it. Right away. You know, that sort of stuff. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. And so, so to me, that's where I want to focus is less about the specifics of the world. There are some things we need to answer. Like, you know, are you going to be in a spaceship? (laughs) You know, Uh, do you also move around as a character? We kind of answered this is that, you know, we do want both that you fly around, but you also have a character that you can move around. You can get out of the spaceship. Um, what we didn't talk about yesterday, but I did—I uh, do have a, 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 you know, a, a visual of—is that I think you should also be able to walk around inside of your ship as well. Um, that those I are essentially, that. you know.
0: I was gonna say that, and I was thinking, like, what if you don't like that idea? We're like, no, no, we're not that because I think you should definitely be allowed to walk around in your ship. You should have storage space. Your ship mm-hmm. should have a physical presence, and you should be yep. able to move around in there, right? I think this this is great. This is two people. You're listening to two people who have never really sat down and and told each other the game idea. We just seem to have a really good overlap over what we want to do, right? And, And I'm hoping that when we eventually come across Uh, This point where one of us feels very strongly about not having something or having something one way, we can find some kind of compromise that doesn't because we both gotta do what we think is gonna be a fun game that we wanna play, right? This is mm-hmm. the whole thing, right? This is, how do I make a game that I wanna play? And as long as we wanna play the same game, we're good. We just have to figure out what we're gonna do, but we don't wanna play the same game, right? Can we, can we come up with a compromise? Can we implement both ideas? Do we scrap both ideas? That's gonna be an interesting, um, interesting cross point when we get there.
1: Right? Yeah, and one of the, strange things that i envisioned from how i always wanted to build this game uh was that there's kind of a core set of just systems that everything fits within but then i always envisioned like that's just like that's just the base universe and then we would go and add additional you want to call them mini games or different systems or whatever you want to call them that are just different things that you can do inside of the game that don't necessarily impact the core game loop or the core gameplay, but just expand the things that, you know, you might want to do when you log in the next time to play. Um, because, you know, it's kind of like building a multiplayer sandbox of sorts, uh, the way that we've talked about this, um, that, you know, we expect, expect people to kind of just exist in this world. There's not necessarily a... Uh, a leveling phase like uh, other MMOs. That's one of the things we kind of ruled out yesterday is that, you know, we both kind of dislike that uh, in a lot of MMOs, there is, uh, there is game A, which is when you get from level, you know, one to max level. Um, and then once you hit max level, all of a sudden it's like, well, now all my old gear is like, just horrible you know you know relatively speaking and i just need to dump everything and start fresh and now there's a completely new progression system that is you know the paragon system or whatever the equivalent is on whatever MMO you want to reference um, and then, like the, the end game is its own game. I find that silly. I agree. I understand. Like that's a great way to do storytelling and stuff. But I like the idea of just having a living world where uh, you don't have to worry about you know, oh, I gotta either pay for a, a character level up to get through uh, to get through the fifty levels because I'm too bored <laughs> to want to do that on my own, or you know, grind through those fifty levels in a pointless endeavor because everything that I earn during those fifty levels I'm just gonna throw away uh, when I get to the point of doing end game content.
0: Um, yeah, I I kind of rambled for a little bit there, but a um, well, good ramble it was because I I I think this is very this I think this is a good design, right? I mean, I think it's a good design because it's part of a game that I want to play. Now there might be a million people out there who think that this is not a good design, but I guess at the same time you're not making a game for every person in the world. You're making a game for someone who wants to play the same game as you, right? That's what we're making, and I agree with mm-hmm. you that. The leveling system, it's nice to have uh, progression, but we have more yes. t- systems of progression than levels, right? Because uh, someone out there might be thinking, what's the point of having these amazing space-born fire bunnies if I can attack them? beat them in combat, and then I get no reward for it. But that is not the case. We do have a progression system, but the progression system will be a lot more specific to what you do. So you choose to play the way you want to play, right? If you want to mm-hmm. go combat heavy or if you want to go, you know, we can't talk too much because uh, well, I certainly can, according to my wife, well, but we care. can't talk too yeah. much about the game, right? So, so it's uh, more about um, I'm not saying too much, but you know, from the conversation we had yesterday, we we want to have uh, the, these facilities that you can build. We want to have this very very. a very big plan. It's a very ambitious project. And the first thing that I think we're going to do is take this and make this as small as possible and actually build something. And then we get to what you were saying. We have this thing, this visual world in, in some form or other that you can navigate, you can walk around, you can exist in this world, and we can start building features on top of that. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, So, you said you can't, you said we can't really talk too much about the game. Um, I'm curious, are you hesitating because you don't want to commit to ideas or uh, are you just not, you're just more talking about how we
0: just haven't decided anything yet? Uh, No, I am simply being cautious because I don't want to say that we are going to have this incredibly amazing system, set of systems that's going to allow you to do all these fantastic things. And then three years down the line, Someone's gonna be pointing at this episode and go, "Where is these flipping systems?" Right? <laughs> we we all remember, you know, certain games in space. over promised a lot, and and they and they. I've were actually studio, enjoyed too, right? playing that the last couple of years. Like it's it's an yeah, it's, I'm, it's, I'm it's I'm a about complete to buy flip around.
1: Uh, yeah, I'm gonna uh, buy. Well, next time game, you're but- playing, it'd be <laughs> fun to, to the poke same. around together. Uh, yeah. Uh, no, I mean, uh, yeah. There's a definitely a uh, under promise over deliver thing, but I do feel like part of what I want this podcast to be able to be is us talking about these game design decisions and kind of you know with a little bit of uncertainty in them, right? Like I, I think that uh, it's important to uh, do what I've heard on a lot of uh, game design podcasts, which is find the fun, which means that like, when you build a systematic game, the systems themselves aren't inherently fun necessarily. They they might be, but um, you're often just thinking that, okay, I liked this from this game, I like that from that game, and I want to try to create a mix-up of the two. And so you build the systems, but each system independently may not actually be that fun to play with. And until you get... A combination of all the systems working together, it may be hard to really know whether or not something's actually going to work. And then once you get there, where you think you need to be, you might find that it's actually not fun at all. (laughs) Like you just you missed you missed the mark. It's not actually fun. And so then you have to you know iterate or rewrite or whatever to try to in an attempt to find the fun. Um, And I think that you know we're going to have ideas on this podcast, um, and we're going to fail. Um, and we're hopefully going to figure out the right combination over time to f- make a game that's actually really fun to play.
0: I think that yeah I have heard that before as well that we you you make you make something you try the game loop or so and if it's not fun don't don't keep working on it. don't throw good money off the bat sort of so, so to say right I have heard that before
1: Yeah I mean I, I think that we're trying to build I mean I think when you're building a systematic game, Um, that there's probably ways to tweak systems to try to find the fun as opposed to throwing everything out, right? So that's where I want to try to build the nice, solid framework of how we think, in general, a MUD-like MMO game might work like from a technological perspective um, so that we can iterate quickly when we get to the point of trying to build these actual gameplay systems. Um, Because I I feel more confident in understanding... How I want to save, like design a system that saves ticks to a database, and you know, persists data, and you know, does all the communication between, you know, moving players between one area to another that might be handled by a different thread or whatever. You know, like I feel more confident in designing a, a, a general architecture for that than saying that when I combine these three gameplay systems, it's going to be fun.
0: <laughs> so, um, so, that's what I want to optimize for is making it easy for us to iterate on systems. I think that's very important as well. Not just iterating on systems, but iterating on the game itself, right? This is th- to be able to um, quickly make uh, changes. And, and I know that a lot of people out there uh, are sort of, you know, sitting up now going like, hang on, quickly do what? You said, um, you, you said you, you're, you're writing this in Rust. And that is, you know, there are faster languages to iterate in and so on and so forth. And and I want to say this, though. I think iterating over something in the long run is going to be a lot easier if you're doing this with a, a language like Rust with a strong type system. right? Mm-hmm. Um, but you know what? I think that's all the time we have for today. Do you have something you want to
1: add? No, I think this has been a wonderful conversation. Um, I will uh, be, I mean... Uh, As always, we welcome uh, listener questions. Uh, I'll put the links to the various locations you can uh, ask them in the show notes. So thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you very much. Have a wonderful
0: Thursday. Bye.